It's the Get Off My Lawn podcast for the week of February 14th, 2016. On tonight's program, you'll hear Cheryl Hewton and Nicholas Falacci, writers and creators of the TV series Numbers, say... When you have a show and you've been a rating success and they have a lot of other things to worry about, they stop paying attention. <laughs> yeah. You didn't see the visual, but Nicholas was pointing yeah. very much in agreement with that. And John Caponera tells us about his vinyl fetish. Yeah, it's almost like old school to go and find an album and put it on. This podcast is sponsored by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash Marusik for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. I'm your announcer, Craig, and here's your genial host, Kevin. Now, I've been looking at some of the statistics of the show since we've started, and we've been going since September. We've been going coming wow. on six months now. Wow, that's been fast. I know. It's time flies when you're not getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That rent comes around yes, often enough. Yes, it does. Enough. But uh, the the numbers are interesting in as much as there's some shows where I think, oh, this is a, a well known person. We're gonna we're gonna get a lot of interest with this person, or we're gonna get some really big numbers with this person, and the opposite happens. <laughs> <laughs> and then I will have people that again are just like friends of mine from college, and I will think, oh, I'm gonna have them on because they'll be interesting just for my own sake, and they'll get big bigger numbers than like well-known people the statistics of it i don't want to name names because i don't want to insult the people that didn't get the bigger numbers but it it shocked me because you never really know what a listener base what a fan base is going to take an interest in regardless we love our fickle fan base we we love y'all you're an interesting group of people to be sure particularly a couple weeks ago we had on and i'm going to try and pronounce the name right this time javier guijo marks watch hey you did it we did it i think we did it and uh, let me tell you something, you xenophans, I almost called you xenophobes, but that's going to start a whole other war. You, Whatever opinion you have for or against the Xena reboot, you are firm in that opinion. The responses I have seen on social media to that interview, you are fervent, <laughs> you, are, you are committed to an opinion of something that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> And quite possibly won't happen. You'd never know with a with a pilot how things are gonna go, but wow, you've got strong opinions and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Tell a friend, share it, share it with everybody. Yes. Um Javier is among other things a showrunner, and we've got another showrunner on the show today. <laughs> and I've been trying to book these two for months, almost since we started the podcast. Uh, Cheryl Hewton and Nicholas Falacci, if you don't recognize the names, a couple years back they were the creators and showrunners of a TV series on CBS called Numbers. Love that show. It was one of those things where I went into that show not wanting to like it, specifically because of the name of the show, because it had the three in the middle of it. Yeah, but it made more sense. It made more sense after you started it. I love that show for a couple of reasons, but number one, 
is and I, I and I've said this to her already in emails and correspondence is that what I liked about it was it was originally booked and promoted as a CBS procedural, you know, just like any other cop show. But it turned out to be a lot more than that. It turned out to be a family drama. Uh, they discussed everything from religion to politics to other elements of society. They did a lot with what was ostensibly a very simple procedural show. And they did it without pandering. They did it without playing to stereotypes. But it really, I got to give credit where this was a show that I went into it not wanting to like it. And it became one of my favorite shows the last 10, 15 years. Agreed. And I I know you liked it too. It just, it was one of those shows that really separated it from, from the pack. And if you didn't check it out, I'm sure it's in on Netflix or somewhere, iTunes, somewhere. I I own all the DVDs of it. And in fact, the DVDs, by the way, as I've been digitizing my archive and creating, you know, a master collection of all of my material, the DVDs of numbers are impossible to override the copy protection on. (laughs) I cannot get a digital copy of it off of the DVDs, but I've tried five different programs and tried a couple of different things and it just it doesn't doesn't happen so those are the dvds that i've kept a lot of the other dvds i've been able to give to friends or just put in storage because i got everything else in my drive but those i gotta pop in a dvd to watch them and i do so that was a good show and we're gonna you know as, as again as if you're not familiar with the term showrunner a little bit it it's Pretty much they got their hand in all aspects of the production, from the writing, which is kind of the forefront of it all, to the casting, to the you know locations, to everything else that goes into it. They've, they've got their hands in all of it. So it's kind of an interesting job. It's a coveted job for a lot of people. And uh, even as Javier talked about a couple weeks ago, if you are a writer, you may not know it, but that's what you're working up to. You know, if you're in this business, you want to ultimately become a showrunner because then not only is it your words, but it's everything that connects to your words. Yeah, it keeps it to as much of your vision as possible. Yeah. And for people that are thinking, well, that's a job, you know, for the old folks or whatever else, showrunners are getting younger and younger and younger. If you look at some of the shows that are out right now that are really popular, these are people in their 20s and 30s that are putting stuff together. And it's entirely their voice that's really making up those shows. And so, you know, part of what this podcast ultimately is, is giving credit to the people behind the scenes. You know, a lot of times when a show is successful, they point to the actors. And there's certainly a big part of it. I'm not taking anything away from the actors of shows. You know, again, looking at numbers, there were some great actors on that show. Uh, sure. You know, from Rob Morrow to Judd Hirsch to some of the other ones that were on it. You know, and these are well-known people. Certainly the show's success owes a lot to them. But there's someone putting words in their mouth. And there's someone that's you know setting the stage, and those are the people I like to celebrate because they don't get that celebration. For sure. For sure. For sure. You you sound a little uh, for sure. Girl. For sure, man. So we're gonna chat with Cheryl and Nick now. We met up at the Fair Oaks Pharmacy in South Pasadena, California. The <laughs> the Fair Oaks Pharmacy is a quirky place. It is part drugstore. It is part restaurant. It is part soda fountain place. Part ice cream parlor. Part uh, Route 66 gift shop. Part everything. If you're not familiar with the South Pass area or South Pasadena area, um, it is just to the side, just off to the side of Hipster Central. So there's lots of little kitschy places, but believe me, none of them are kitschier than than the Fair Oaks Pharmacy. So that's where we're heading right now. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Cheryl and Nick. Well, welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We have two guests today. We have Cheryl Hewton, and I'm going to try and pronounce your last name, Nicholas Falachi. Did I say it right? Perfect. Perfectly. Perfectly. Excellent. And uh, we are here outside the beautiful, palatious, tiny little Fair Oaks Pharmacy. 
but I used to live in South Pass, so I know this area pretty well. It's a fun little place. Yeah. You get ice cream and pharmaceuticals <laughs> yes. in the same place, which is always nice. You two are probably, not even probably, best known as sort of the, the creator showrunners of Numbers. Right. Yes. I want to talk a lot about that because it was one of my favorite shows. Oh, thank you. And it was one of those shows, I, I, the way I describe how good it is, is it was one of those shows that I went into it not wanting to like it. <laughs> And because A, I was tired of procedurals at the time. Sure. And B, you had the number three in the title. We didn't do that. I know. <laughs> so, like, we used to call it Num Threeers. Yes. That was yeah. our big yep. running joke about it. But it turned out to be an awesome show, and I want to talk about Thank that. You. I know you guys have been on deadline after deadline after deadline. Are, you, other, are you allowed to talk about what you're working kind on? Of, or is that some, still, we uh, can talk yeah, vaguely to a certain, to a certain yeah. extent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like top secret stuff, but, no. you know. Well, let's start there. What are you guys, what are you guys up to these days? Uh, right now we have two, two pilot deals and some other stuff going. We're doing a pilot at Fox, uh, not at the network, at the studio, oh. uh, based on a uh, crazy Korean action comedy that we're adapting. And nice. we're working with um, Circle of Confusion on that and Tom Jacobson and the director, Dean Pariseau, who we really love. He's the guy that did Galaxy Quest. Which oh, cool. Yeah. My favorite movies of all time. I hear they're still trying to remake that or do a sequel to it. They're trying. Yeah. I think Dean would really like to. Um, there's some challenges as one of their major actors passed, passed away. away. I know yeah. Alan Rickman so made that character. Yeah. That really threw him for a curve. So we'll, we'll see, see how they, they do. do. See yeah. how they do. So we're working. At, we, we love that because it's action. This project is action comedy, which is actually our roots more than any. It's our sweet spot. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's... You wouldn't know that from numbers, but no. that is... But, <laughs> well, there was no. enough comedy mixed in with the action we, of those We those worked shows. very hard for that. Um, that was our intention with the show, but it was an intention that often got lost in the shuffle at CBS. Yeah. Because um, I do want to talk about what, sure. they, what their expectations were of a procedure. Oh, sure. I've listened to your DVD commentaries a little bit and heard you talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> CBS has a certain, like, do they even have, like, a checklist of things you must do? To no, to there's nothing like that. But CBS, when we, you got to remember, this is going back a ways. We first pitched it to them in 2003, shot it in 2004. And the they were pilot. the first, both pilots, if you think right. about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> both, um, and they were very much, they did procedurals then. Mm -hmm. And they were... They said that they wanted to try to loosen that up a bit, but when it push came to shove, they didn't. So we had, early on, we really had to push to keep the show what we had pitched, and a lot of people were on the other side of that push. Yeah, people, I mean, there were like there were not checklists, but you ran into certain things that uh, they felt that's that true. the show they should... They would have wanted you to play it safe versus trying different ideas. Right. Well, as an example, uh, when we shot the first... The pilot the first time around, you know, Cheryl and I, our concept was, you know, this is really about family, right. and the, particularly the, the brothers, and we wanted to, after the crime was solved, we were going to have a scene where we at the family home, yeah, with the brothers and dad, and CBS said initially, no, 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 because, you know, no what? one, no one's interested, once you find the killer, the show gonna, is the over, show's, show's oh. over, find the killer in yeah. the show, and they also said, we can't have humor, you can't be joking when there's a dead person. The, yes. the urgency of the Clearly crime. Clearly, they never watched the, Homicide: Life on the Street or any of the other. Right. Well, right. <laughs> right. and they would say that that is not the CBS. At that right. point, particularly, they would have said that's not the CBS brand. Yeah. So they were they were pushing back on humor. They were pushing back on the family stuff. They were pushing back on anything that didn't feel directly on target solving crime now. Yeah. And 
as the show went forward, those things all became what tested well, what people liked. It really became yeah. the show. It and like I said, I went into yeah. it not wanting to like right. the show, and it was those elements that drew me right. to it. Yeah, to CBS's credit, when, you know, actually early on, we shot the next episode that Cheryl and I wrote, we again put a scene at the home following the end of the crime story. And the, they tested it, and the response was huge. So then they wanted to do that. Th then they all the switched time. over. Yeah. The, yeah. the checklist became every show needs to end with a family scene, and we're like, yeah. and, and the home became almost a character in yeah. itself. Yeah. They really did yeah. a nice job of sort of you guys did of incorporating really. You heard the traditional music that would kick into the Epps yeah. house home. You'd, you know, zoom yeah. in on, on them outside the kitchen and having yeah. a conversation or playing a game yeah. or drinking a beer. The, the first season that was an actual house, and then this, from after that we are a great um, designer, Bill Eigenbrot, built all that on a set. That's very cool. So that yeah, I've driven yeah. past the out to the exterior yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. The Craftsman that whole block. Yes, yeah, so in the nice Adams house. district. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's right around the corner from the six feet under house. Yeah. <laughs> I was bored one afternoon a year or two ago, and I did a tour of like some of those homes and hit that one, the the Happy Days house, and yeah. the, you know, all these other. Ones that I found is, the toughest one to find is the Brady Bunch house because they oh in the valley, yeah, because yeah. they changed the way to get to it so many different. So times. many great yeah. houses. I know that where the um, Halloween house is. Oh, a yeah. friend of mine bought it and re refurbished it actually. Oh, that's very yeah, cool. Years ago. That's very cool. Now, to me, the thing that I said you know really made numbers click was like you said when it wasn't focused on the procedural elements. Mm -hmm. of it. When it became, not that the crime itself was ancillary to what right. was going on, but there were so many relationships right. that you managed to have, so many regular characters that yeah. became a part of that numbers family. Like you said, it was at its core became more of a family drama, but the family right. was also their friends and exactly. coworkers oh, yeah. and, and other things. Again, yeah, we, we really love to recur people as much as we could. Yeah, and still, absolutely. that's 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 yeah. something we still right. the, the project we're doing now. We're trying to create characters, just even in the pilot, that you think are going to be throwaway or one one offs, yeah. but that are going to be coming back and coming back. I think that's something viewers are attracted to in television. It's, it's a group of characters, and it, you know, if they really like the show, they're going to come in week in, week out, and it's sort of their family yeah. that they're coming to. Yeah. And how much say did you have in the casting process? A lot. That? I mean, when you even it. Even at networks where they aren't necessarily looking to creators or first-time creators like we were to do all that stuff, they still put you in. You're in every casting session, and you have a very strong voice in those sessions. Yeah. It's, it was. I was amazed, actually. I didn't know that I was at the time qualified to do that. <laughs> they originally started sending us like you know headshots and you know, all this stuff on, on information on actors, and Cheryl was like, "Why are we getting this stuff?" <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "It's because now you're a producer." Yeah, our, 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 that was our very first pilot that yeah, we did. I don't in know if it, 1999 was our first one, and I, yeah, they sent us a they sent us a reel for Josh Hopkins, who's now on Quantico, and I was like. What is this? <laughs> um, just to, to, you know, to, uh, to be sure, that's we came from features. Yeah. Oh, television. oh yeah. So that's we right. kind of made that jump, and we didn't really know. I mean, we Cheryl particularly is a huge fan of television. Yeah. So, but that was all our experience. We didn't have. We any just had production. feature experience. We didn't know what we were well, expected of us. Interesting. Yeah. 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 It was a trial by fire. And I know because again on the DVD they, they include some sequences from the original pilot. Yes. Yeah. How did you end up with Rob Morrow? How did that casting the first decision? The first time through, he was not cast right. as Don yeah. Epps. Uh, we had someone else. We had the guy Gabriel Macht, who is now on Suits. Suits. And, but we still had David Krumholtz. And instead of um, Judd Hirsch, we had, oh, I'm going to forget his name, and he's a great actor. Lenny. Lenny. Uh, he's on um, Len Carew, who's okay. on Blue Bloods now, but yeah. is also famous as creating Sweeney Todd on Broadway. Great actor. Wonderful. They just did not 
the, those three, Krumholtz, Gabriel Macht, and Len did not look like a family to CBS, yeah. to a lot of people. And I think that in, in the CBS, particularly then, really thrived on putting major TV stars you were familiar with in front of you. Yeah. And so when we, this, when it came around to casting it the second time, they were just like, Rob Morrow, Judd Hirsch, let's go. We actually interviewed quite, they wanted, for the second time around, they wanted Rob Morrow. Um, the Judd Hirsch part, we saw a lot of people for, but they were all yeah. at that point fairly big name people. Yeah. And, um, Elliot Gould, all those kind of yeah. wonderful actors. That would have been a different take on the character. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. But it's funny because Judd had played David's father in David's very first acting job ever. And so Krumholtz was really, he was a little just. little family reunion. He was yeah. just thrilled. Yeah. He'd also been in uh, Adam's Family Values oh. with uh, Peter yeah. McNichol. Yeah. So, but when he saw our casting coming together, he was just so emotional yeah, as about it. As soon as he heard about Judd, he was crazy. He started crying. Yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. Peter McNichol was an interesting choice, too. I got I was an NBC page back oh, way, yeah. way, way back when, and uh, he was a guest on The Tonight Show back in the 90s, and I remember him as being the most kind, generous very. person. Like, the show wrapped, and he sat around with just people in the audience to chat with them he's about court, whatever he, they wanted. He's very sweet. He's a sweet, courtly gentleman. Incredibly. It was interesting. We fell in love with him right away as soon as we, as soon as I spoke to him on the phone, and I realized how good he'd be at this. But our conception for that part was very different. That character was supposed to be similar in age to, the, to Charlie's Charlie, character. Yeah. It was supposed to be his buddy. It was more of a, our original notion of the college world was much more Big Bang Theory yeah. than what it became. Yeah. Much more. Much younger. Much younger. Um, and the idea was that these would be these two kind of nutty friends. Well, you had the Charlie character who was eccentric and mathematical, but that he had this friend who was way more out there. Yeah. The cosmologist. The Tempest playing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then... Really into deep quantum thought. Because, you know, then when CBS said, what about Peter McNichol? I'm like, well, he's great. He's a master, masterful actor. But he, then Charlie's going to have two dads. And CBS was like, so? <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it worked out. It worked yeah. out. And I just... And again, we'll, we won't only talk numbers, though, again, no. I am a huge fan of the show, but... It was interesting to me the things, I, the way I kept saying it to my friend when I was telling him I was going to be interviewing you is you guys got away with so much on that show. Yes. I mean, you were able to include I'm amazed sometimes. conversations about religion. I mean, yeah. serious conversations about theology, you know, mm -hmm. Jewish heritage, these different things that you not only don't see in a procedural, but you don't see in a regular drama for the most part. Yeah. You guys were able to put a lot of that stuff in, which I it just impressed the heck out of me when you'd see an episode and literally not know where things were going to turn with those characters. Well, sometimes when you have a show and you get into your second or third season and you've been a rating success and they have a lot of other things to worry about, they stop paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't see the visual, but Nicholas was pointing yeah. very much in agreement <laughs> at that. Yeah. Yeah. And then plus, yeah. when we, whenever Nick and I particularly would push comedy, and when we would push comedy, we got big fan and ratings reactions to that. And they slowly came around to realizing, oh, yeah. this should have a comedic run through it. Right about then, the somewhere around then, NCIS started running much more comedic yeah. lines. Yeah. Now I don't think you could pitch up, you could not pitch a straight up procedure. I, I would not think you could get a procedural on the air at CBS that didn't have some comedy in it. Maybe I'm wrong. No, but I, I love know. it because yeah. that, that is sort of where you get to push the envelope is when they stop paying attention to you. <laughs> Like, your ratings are good, you're good, so it's like, and, and the flip side of that was, you know, struggling to get more promotion for the show. That's true, yeah. you, yeah, that was always a problem. Yeah, it's like, why do we need to promote you guys? You guys are great, you're fine. You're doing great. Yeah. And that you guys, now, you, 
incurred the writer's strike about what three quarters of the way through the show. About season that, four. season four, season four yeah. season five, something like that. Yeah, I think that, season four. Because yeah. you, I, it seemed to me like you guys would have sort of a, a rough layout of how the whole season was going to go. Um, things. I don't know that well, we really... we were just sir, uh, episodic do... enough yeah. that it didn't really kill us. We could we we lost I think eight. We, we did sixteen that so we lost yeah. six episodes. We it's, didn't really lose a it's whole. It's not like we. It's not like on day one we map out the entire season. No, we didn't work. It was that's a, not a show that was done that way. We maybe mapped it out six episodes at a time. Yeah. And we knew we were slowly. We knew eventually where we were going, but that was. It was just tough. The the hardest thing about the strike for us was it was really hard on the crew. Economic. Economically, yeah, we yeah. had we set up the executive producer set up a yeah. fund, kind of an assistance fund, and. Just, I mean, a lot of people hard. had, you know, the ability to sit it, you know, to get through, you know, economically, but you also were aware that there were all, all sorts of people in your production team Who that don't not. have that kind of cushion or, or ability to do that, yeah. so, yeah. I think people who aren't in the business don't always see that aspect of it. Right. Is you know when they see the strike, they see it's a writer's strike, and the focus is on the writers. Yeah. And they don't often see, like yeah. you said, you know, the crew has to go find other work. You have to do something, and, yeah, because yeah. they're in Impact. trouble. Yeah. And even the writer, you're talking about staff writers, people who are lower level people only getting were paid struggling. For scripts. Yeah. And if you're not, you know, if you're not writing scripts, you're not getting paid. Now you're you're my first writing duo that I'm oh, really? talking hey. to. Uh, I've had a lot of people that have written collaboratively right. or you know, work in a writer's room. Tell me about your process in terms of, of writing. Does somebody decide, oh, I'm going to start the script and then someone else picks up? Or do you sit together as you're writing it? We work, uh, we come up, one of us will come up with an idea and pitch that idea to the other one. And then and we then talk about, about how we develop it. trying to convince yeah. the other person it's, yeah, a, some of it's these a worthwhile idea. <laughs> I came up with numbers and it, the hardest pitch I ever had was to him. But once it got, we got it going, it was going. Um, but then we will, we will outline, or if we're going to pitch it, we uh, organize the pitch. We kind of will talk it through, and then one of us sits down and writes it out, generally me. And then I hand whatever that, if it's a pitch or an outline, I hand that document to him, and then he does a pass, hands it back to me, I do another pass, and we kind of go back and forth till we have it where we want it. And when we're writing, We'll normally take the outline and break it up. Like I've got Act One, you've got Act Two. Then we'll see where we are, and, and just and then it, the the whole document gets passed back and forth and back and forth. Like we're doing a, a notes pass for the studio right now, and I just did a spent a week doing a write through, addressing the notes and then making changes I want. And today I hand it off to him, and he'll do a, a he'll do his thing, go do a pass through it, come back to me, and then when we're finally comfortable, goes to the studio. Well, well, we, we never sit in a room and write no, at the same time. No, we don't do that. Yeah, we could, how do we kill each other? <laughs> and we know teams that do that. I don't know yeah. how they do it. Uh, what was, was a nice surprise for us was we found that even though we were going off by ourselves and doing separate sections, was when we put the, when we merged stuff, it it, it worked. It, it, there was there was uh, fluidity. I mean, it just it didn't feel like. We're putting together patchwork writing. We have a lot of the same story instincts, a lot of the same taste in story and humor and character and in genre. We we like to subvert genres, do stuff. We often will find something one of us thought was going to be a weird surprise to the other one. The other one's already doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And is your process the same when you were doing features versus doing TV, or did it change? It was the it same. Was close to the close same. Close to the same. It's just TV involves a few more steps. A few like more steps, and you tend to be wanting to move a little faster. Yeah, a lot TV. faster. 
well, I, I would assume with all the different deadlines in TV, yeah, yeah that, that yeah. thing. Did you have writers working under you at Numbers? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we had a whole oh, writing a staff. Beautiful staff. We had okay. uh, co-showrunners and full staff and executive producers and staff then writers, all the way down to staff writers. We didn't run a traditional writer's room, though, at Numbers. Because no. we got the... Um, it's kind of, well, there were three other people involved in showrunning over the life of the show. The first one did run a traditional writer's room. But only he was only there like five, six episodes. Then from there, the guy who t came on from there had been with Law and Order, where at that time they didn't run writer's rooms. So no, he had no writer's room. Script. It was so isolated, episodic, yeah. yeah. He just managed each script. And then the, the guy after that would have, he was still a non-writer's room guy. Um, yeah, because he came from features as yeah, well. Yeah, uh, those of us who come from features are so used to being self-starters, problem solvers on our own, mm -hmm. yeah. that sometimes to us the writer's room feels like an encumbrance, some it depends on the room and the well, it can actually slow down the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because you're, 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 you've got a certain voice, you have a vision, and you know you know how to push. If you hit a bump, you you just work that bump as hard as you can till you get it over. And writers' rooms can kind of wa wander. You, it you depends. Move, you move at the pace of the slowest person in the writers' room. Yeah. Unless you have a good showrunner who knows how to exactly. Keep that you going. have to you have to keep good showrunners make a room yeah. very productive. A lot of others don't, but that's, we. That's true. We, but we. Um, Name names. <laughs> I could. I've been in rooms with people who start every day going. I want to go back to. I want to go back to. Let's beat go one. back. Let's to go the first back. Scene. I'm not sure we've done everything we can do in the first scene. Yeah. And I would well, no. Where, no. 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 Where are we going to? <laughs> You'd ask those questions like, well, well, we'll find. Yeah, we'll we, find it. We'll we, find it. It's like, no, we're not going to find it. we got to know. Yeah. Have a vision for a piece and yeah. work from your vision. There's some, yeah, there's something to be said about too much tinkering. There's something you know, to be said about everyone in the room having an equal voice, too, because everyone in the room is not equally talented. Right. Yeah. And yeah. everyone in the room is not equally have a vision, and some of them are people who don't know story, don't have an organized sense for story whatsoever, and others who have been in TV for years and years have had a certain, certain formulas beat into them, and getting them out of those formulas is often the hardest work people showrunners have. Is I we I've I've sat in rooms with people who have been pitching the last show they worked on or the most successful show they may have worked on and yeah. not the show that they're sure. working on. Yeah. Anyway. Well that kinda leads me into my next question which was how do you ultimately decide what writers are gonna work with you on a show? You um is found out the hard way on our first show that went to air. They just you start reading everybody because Especially if you're a traditional show like ours, where you were going during the main pilot season, there's all these writers out yeah. there, a lot of them incredibly talented, Staffing and they're season. getting snapped yeah. up like this, just like Everybody unbelievably. Yeah. So you, we ended up reading um, 300 Stacks. scripts, 300 writers, not scripts, writers. And yeah. uh, then when you saw someone you, we had a team of about five people reading, when you saw yeah. someone you liked, you'd ask for, try to get another script on that person or two read that and then you tell the other people on your reading team you know get your other executive producer partners other people hey you got to read this person let's get them in here let's meet with them then you meet with those people and then yeah. you try to get an offer out and when we were doing it 90 percent of the time you'd hear yeah. oh so-and-so's gone yeah. onto this so-and-so's <laughs> gone onto that yeah, yeah so you're good you're just going and going and going exactly. as soon as you pick up the scripts that read you go oh this person's good they're gone wow. and what happens then too though is that you as many of those, you get in a room with as many of those people as you can get. So you're, oh God, putting a show up is the hardest thing because you're trying to meet as many writers as you can. You have hours a day of auditions and everything else you're doing. But we would try to, we were meeting three, four, five writers a day on some yep. days. And some of those people 
our contacts and friends and people we've known ever since. Yeah. So there's a guy we met that first round that I will swear I'm going to work with someday if we can. <laughs> it, it, that's how it is. Yeah. And that, you know, I work production. I didn't do any writing. I, I, I was the guy behind the scenes, moving cables and <laughs> junk like that. But I noticed that even in the silly shows that I worked, producers would have sort of their almost cadre of crew that they really liked, they knew, they trusted. Yeah. You know, and that was how I always joked when I taught at a film school out in Hollywood a couple of years ago. I said, you know, I worked on about 50 different shows. I only interviewed, I think, twice. Yeah, exactly. Because people will develop that working yeah. relationship yeah, with people. And you're just, oh, I want that guy back. Or, you know, want Which is good, back. good with writers, but it can be limiting because then you yeah. have the older showrunners have this group of people that look a lot like them. Yeah. And yeah. we're trying and in our business to bring in more voices, bring in different yeah. talents. One of the things we noticed when we were interviewing people is that some very people who weren't the model of the who weren't Ivy League educated white guys mm -hmm. were some of the most interesting people who came in the door. Oh sure. And um, but there boy, there's a lot of Ivy League educated people. Period, looking to write for TV. It was yeah. stunning to me. Amazing. Well, and like, how with all the controversy of the Oscars nominating very few minorities. Is that something that you guys as showrunners think about? Is, you know, oh, you want a diverse group of writers, you want a diverse group of characters, or is that something that's almost ancillary to story? Or? I think that just the way, I think that you want a diverse group of writers and you want a diverse group of characters because that's what the world looks like to people yeah. now. And if you, and, and some of the most successful shows on TV are big on diversity, right? You, yeah. You'd be crazy to ignore that. And I mean, you look at not just TV, but across movies, on, in theater, everywhere. And, it, and like I said, Numbers was just a fun show for me to watch because you would take characters, like you said, a lot of them started out very minor characters. You know, right. Navi Rawat's yeah. character had two lines, I think, in the first episode. A little more than that. Yeah. supposed to have, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I and, and that character became so central right. to the other characters. Right. And so, you know, so and, and it wasn't like, you didn't have sidekicks. You know, or little stereotypes right. that bopped around on the show. You had full-fledged, right. unique characters, you know. I belonged to a TV message board started years ago, and one of the things we always talked about while the show was going on was that it could have been very easy for you guys to take Rob Morrow's character and make him the dumb cop. Right. No, yeah. they, And he wasn't that, you know, and it's a tribute to you guys that you made him in. You know, he wasn't the math genius, right. but he wasn't dumb. It wasn't like, oh, my brother's so much smarter than me. No, he no. was always... We specifically the, the wanted... The character was yeah. conceived to be a really smart guy yeah. who had felt... who didn't realize how smart he was because he's always been the shadow of this exceptional yes, person. Yeah. Yeah. And that his journey was supposed to be kind of learning that his own exception... how exceptional he was too, despite the shadow of this person. Because... Yeah. That's we had inter so much of what yeah. Don is as a person, as a character, was in reaction to Charlie, and that's yeah, that yeah. was our goal. We had actually met people who kind of had his experience in life. In fact, we one of them is a TV writer. Yeah. So there's a guy named Matt Witten, W I T T E N, yep. whose brother is what is his brother's name? I'm going to forget. Eddie. Eddie. Ed Witten. <laughs> Ed Witten. Matt Witten's a very good TV writer. <laughs> Ed Witten is possibly the most significant physicist alive. Wow. And Matt said to us that he felt dumb growing up in a house with Ed, despite the fact that like Matt is like a, uh, I think a champion-rated chess like player, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you grew up with someone who's just on another world, and you think you're not bright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, like I said, I can't praise the show enough. Just to me, it was just such oh, a nice you. balance of, of nice. 
everything that a show at that time was supposed to be really like i said you know the procedurals were out there everyone had to do a procedural yeah. at that point but you guys took that basic formula and played with it or at least it felt to me like it was playful. We, we cheryl i can find you cheryl used to like to say um she always wanted to do an episode of numbers where there wasn't a crime it's true it's true i but we also had one thing we never wanted to do was something humorless. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we still have that. We do not want, I t in fact, now when we walk into meetings or people ask us what we want to do, I'll say, well, one thing, it cannot be humorless. I've just had it with the earnest, dour thing that some shows have yeah. and some whole works have. I just don't want to, I just don't I mean, think life works that way. I mean, you, you see it in, in the best kinds of shows and movies, even in the darkest, edgiest kind of stories, there's be there's humor. Humor, humor comes out of tension and stress. Yeah. And I've seen, like, you know, I know you said you're working on the Korean action hero story. It, well, it was yeah. a Korean action comedy. And I, I don't, wouldn't call it action hero, no, because it's not a superhero story at all. But it's no. it's definitely like a buddy comedy. I don't know how to, it's, it's well, it's, it's a genre breaker. So that's yeah. why it's kind of, but it's about two, like, traditional characters you might see in an action movie grounded and put through an emotional the real emotional ringer they might actually be experiencing if they were trying to be this in real life yeah. if that makes sense That's and kind of a true grit scenario where they have to help a younger more innocent person yeah. who has their own surprise strengths and it's set in san francisco which we love have fun of that and and with dean it's scary to do comedy unless you have the right director but dean Pariso's yeah. God, I hope we hold this team together because it's uh, <laughs> he's exactly the right guy for it. I mean, I would say our sweet spot is kind of similar to the Elmore Leonard type of tone. Very oh, much. Very nice. And that's the hat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, really, that's the, the, the last thing we yeah. the last thing we shot was an Elmore Leonard based pilot. Yeah, it was a pilot yeah. for USA, and yeah. that was supposed to have that sort of tone. And we and that was one of the lessons we learned: is like how difficult it is to maintain that tone through development into production. If the if you get the wrong director, you're not going to yeah. get it. Um, that's why we're really thrilled to have uh, Dean yeah. board on this one, because he really understands that. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that one. Was it your decision to stop it the last season? or was No, that was the network. Um, no, both. The, I can say... Which the... the I can say no to both those. Okay. Uh, it was the, it was <laughs> the network. Once in a lifetime? Or no, no. It? Was it our, this, the end of the show? Oh, the end? Uh, the, um, I can't say the show. Yes. Yeah, um, that was the network's decision, but it had been six years and we were ready. Yeah. We were... Uh, uh, a show is a daily struggle. There's a lot of issues every day on a show like that where you still got a lot of voices weighing in, trying to keep the vision. We had a certain vision for the show that would us fight all along. I can't yeah. put it any other way. And yeah. finally being able to put that fight down was a relief. <laughs> yeah. 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 If also, you... I was just going to say quickly, you know, we're also, it was, a, it was a traditional network broadcast show. So we were making normally 22, 24 episodes a season. Right. It's and a grind. That's a grind. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of episodes. If we were on cable and we were doing... 13. You know, yeah, <laughs> 13 been different. or even... Yeah, it's a lot different. If you had a chance to do one more episode, what story would you want to tell? Well, there's a lot of ones we, we didn't get to do. Um, but uh, what would you really want to do? Um, yeah, what's we, that we, one? we did hit you, unlimited budget, unlimited access to actors. Uh, it, it would it would be the one that I, I the, always wanted. The one that's th this one that there's no crime. Yeah. One where each or yeah. the crime is is not the centerpiece. That the issue is each brother teaches his method yeah. of thinking and crime problem solving to the other one, and they both they crosses over. My the whole concept, which we kind of lost it more than I wanted to lose it, was to smash the worlds together originally 
the Navirawa character, Mina, was not supposed to be Charlie's girlfriend. Yeah. I get very angry about that. <laughs> she was supposed out, to people. be stolen. <laughs> the character of Don was supposed to be far closer in age to yes. Charlie, and he was supposed to start a relationship. Oh, really? She ended up in yeah. his world, but then Charlie ended up with someone from the FBI world. Oh, you yeah. pulled it across like that, which was way more interesting to me than just having that linear line. As we, um, I was, go ahead. And I, that's... That's what I always wanted to do, was show how certain types of thinking can cross into other fields. There was one episode in particular where we titled it, When Worlds Collide. Mm. And that was one of the ones, as we got further into the uh, series, Cheryl and I kind of started trying to hit those main episodes we had always wanted to do. Yeah. And When Worlds Collide was one of them, where you, you just force both worlds just on a head-on collision with each other, where you, yeah. know, you have a scientist who's being uh, accused of terrorism. Oh, okay. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was the season fin premiere after the or it was just the season, season finale, finale of, of the writer strike season. Yeah, yeah. four of season. Yeah, that's right. So it's yeah stuff like that. I mean, some a lot of the ones we really wanted to do, we did get to do. Yeah. Like we wanted to do the the zodiac based one. We yeah. wanted to do the. Um, you want to do the haunted airbase? Haunted airbase. Nick, Nick, Nick was going on. I want to do one about a haunted airbase, and I would always say, "Sounds great. Just give me a premise beyond haunted. Like, what kind of thing happens at the there haunted airbase?" It needs to be airbase? a mystery machine. Well, this went on for like three years, where I would just say, "Just tell me what the well, going was that, on in the was, haunted airbase." Partially a joke. I yeah. Like, Let's do the haunted airbase. But, but eventually, you, you know, you're 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 sitting there, and you're like. What are we going to do? We have like 20 episodes or whatever. Let's do the haunted airbase. Hey, that one nice. was, that's one of our favorites. Yeah. Between us, it's one of our favorites. And the part, I don't know if you remember, it's the one with John Michael Hagen's in it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he that plays the, the, the spooky guy. Department NSA sort of yeah. Exactly. Guy. Department, Who, Department 44. And yes. we're huge fans of his, and he was fantastic. Yeah. But I will say the part was written for someone else, and that was John Hodgman. Oh, that would have been a good casting, yeah. too. Yeah. We, we were yeah. told he wasn't available. <laughs> John, if you're out there, sometimes <laughs> we'll, we'll get you. Yes. Other podcast man, Hodgman. Yes. He's fantastic. He, yeah. yeah, I've got all three of his audio book versions of his so books, and they're just great fun to listen to. Pretty much any time you he, need a quick laugh. I find his humor really inspiring, actually, yeah. and I find that a lot of what he does with his com comedic voice, both on his podcast and in his live stage shows, something that I, we don't do that voice, but it inspires the yeah. voice we do. Yeah, his uh, TED talk I just posted oh, I gotta on, look at on, that. on my thing because it, it was a segment from his book. Yeah. I don't know whether which came first, whether it became you know part of him yeah. on stage or the book first. But it just again, like you said, it's not intent. I don't know if it's intended to be inspirational, but it was a very yeah. cool, flowing story narrative, telling different things. Yeah. And just, he's actually a weirdly inspirational guy. Yeah. And, and when he does his live stage shows, he's mostly just talking about his own life and his vacations and all. And yet, yeah, he always a, comes to a very profound place. Well, it's a very existentialist type of writing. It's, it's you know, he's almost like a modern-day Mark Twain. That's I, the way I That's what I've, to I've actually told him. I've told him that many <laughs> times, too. I've, I've kind of likened his sort of cadence to Spalding Gray, if you ever yes. watched yes. any of oh, yeah. monologues. Very, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he does, um, yeah, he did this thing up in San I don't know if you know, the San Francisco Sketch Fest. Mm -hmm. if you're, this year, um, the same guys who do Thrilling Adventure Hour and Ben Blacker, who does the Nerdist Writers Panel, he and another guy kind of set up this thing called Dead Pilot Society, where they had some people come and do table reads of pilots that, that had sell. that had yes. well that had sold, well, sold but, but had get... not gone on to production. Yeah. And one of them they did up there was Hodgman's. I didn't even know he'd written a pilot, yeah. and it was just brilliant, just the funniest, but very weird and fairly unproducible. <laughs> 
uh, there was an element well, to it that was it was well because it's like a teen comedy. That's that what made it great. A teen comedy romance. Only he's in it playing his teen self, but he's an adult. Okay. So it's just yeah. one scene where he's dancing with a 14-year-old girl, and they come close to kissing. That it's can like, be dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the, 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 the whole scene is set up for the awkwardness, though. Yeah. Yeah. But he is it's he's brilliant. a brilliant comedic writer. I think the Mark Twain analogy is actually quite good. Yeah. yeah it, there's there's a lot of people that I mean, he's obviously been discovered. You know, his podcast and his yeah. stuff. They do their Max Fun Con. It's coming up. I yeah. When? Um, March or something, May? Yeah. Something. Yeah. Up in, up in I got Europe. a friend that goes every year. Every year. And just they managed to build up that. I'm not looking to do that with my podcast. I'm just looking to have fun. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. Just well, as much as uh, John uh, Hodgman is so well known in the in the podcast world and and this world of like you know nerds and geeks and all the fun stuff we love. But I'm still amazed at how many people don't aren't yeah, aware of still him. For, an underground success for, for like yeah a for for a person with such a phenomenal voice that really hits on all of no, he does tend culture. to sell out his live shows pretty oh yeah solidly. yeah no no he's popular within that world but outside of yeah. that you know you find like people like I don't know who John Hodgman is it's like come on <laughs> <laughs> well do you know who James Thurber is you exactly, know who John Hodgman exactly is. <laughs> you have to know sir. Well, what is your uh, what, what's what's your dream writing job now? What's the what's the next I thing you want to do? We're doing, I think we're doing, we're doing it. it right yeah. now. This is as close. This we had actually done something similar in tone and style to this back in two thousand three, and really yeah. loved it. Yeah. And now we're back doing this. Only the market is very. Um, this everyone who represents yeah. us in the studios thinking that the market is very good right now for a genre subversive action comedy. With a lot of um, a lot of character work, um, so that's we're really really enjoying it. It's um, like, yeah, I, I, it's like trying to take the blacklist and just explode it out, even you know, on a larger sort of larger, more human. Yeah, at, more at the human. same time, making more human and grounded. Far more human. I'll, I'll tell you the title of it because I think the title's probably going to hold. The title is yeah. Bullet and Brain. And that's nice. the nicknames of two characters. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, and it's just been the most fun. And Dean Pariso, again, has been just fantastic collaborator um, because he's so comfortable with stuff. Um, he's, it's in, I don't know, you're familiar with the Venture Brothers? Mm -hmm. Okay. A lot of what the Venture Brothers does in their world is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Of course, they're not grounded whatsoever, yeah. but we're grounded. <laughs> no, but they bring but, that, that element of like, well, the henchmen, they've got their own lives going on. What's yeah. that like? Or so someone someone you think is a throwaway character yeah. in one episode is actually someone you're going to go through the whole series with. Yeah. That's yeah. the kind of thing we're working with. I remember there was a joke going on for years that there was going to be a Star Wars movie that featured just like a stormtrooper in his day-to-day -day life. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to have watched the most recent Star Wars film, and yep. the main character, one of the main characters, was a stormtrooper yeah. who is now living. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, it became, it started out the theory was a joke almost of like how can you take a minor character and make exactly. it major? But yeah. Well, I thank you guys for spending oh, uh, the whole time with us. I hope it wasn't too painful. No, so sorry oh, no. we were running late there. Yeah, yeah no, sorry that's about that. fine. Uh, you guys were, uh, I mean, like I said, I've been in contact with you a lot yeah. the last couple months, really trying to trying to get a time nailed down. Because you, 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 you guys are hysterical on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure and link to you guys on Twitter. Now, I, I wanted to talk to you too briefly because you have a journalism background yes, before I do. Yes. writing. 
why? I, I have a communications degree too. So. <laughs> why, why was I in journalism? Yeah, what, well, was, what was your motivation and how did you get out of it and become well, a you know, feature in TV I, writer? I can answer it fairly quickly. I'm old, I hope I'm older than I look. Um, I don't want to look as old as I am. But I, I came up in, um, I came into a, you know, adulthood in the 70s. So you have um, Watergate. You had all, journalism all at its managed. height, and you also had newspapers still working. Yeah. <laughs> newspapers were still successful. So I, my first job, my first real job, other than like a waitress job, was at a small newspaper, and I came up through newspapers. That, that's and this was in North San Diego County, so um, I came to LA to work at a newspaper. At the time, I don't even know if that paper's there anymore, but it was um, it was the Daily News that was run out of Van Nuys. And, yeah, and it was owned by, back then it was owned by Tribune Company, and then I went to the Herald Examiner, which was a grand newspaper in the tradition of great newspapers. And then I um, basically went um, to the Long Beach Press-Telegram, because this is now in the 80s when the whole business started contracting and getting smaller, and you could see, oh, this is going to be trouble. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to go to the paper that I thought had the best chance of staying alive, and the Press-Telegram was owned by Knight Ritter and this very successful company at the time. And that's when I met Nick, who was out here on his first job. He had a different partner at the time and had sold a screenplay in a huge bidding war to Columbia with Joel Silver producing. Nice. And we met rock climbing. Yeah. And he and he lived in New York. He was going to go back to New York. I lived here and we were like, how's this going to work? One of us has to move. And I'd always, being a journalist and a, a lover of magazines and journalism, I'd always wanted to try New York. It's, that's where they published the New Yorker, for God's sake. I grew up on that. So I one moved of my to New first, York. Well, one of my first questions to Cheryl was, because she, she's obviously, we're getting notes of other, and she's a journalist. And I, I picked up something about her. I'm like, and it just made me curious. Like, do you want to be a, do you want to write other stuff? <laughs> and I think that was the question that sort of like. Yeah, and then, you yeah. know, he uh, just so sort of started trying to do some stuff together, and it worked out, and then moved back out here, yeah. got an agent. Um, As it turns out, I come from a journalism family myself. Yeah. My dad was a Boston Globe reporter, had his own weekly newspaper, so that kind of was rematched. So in the blood, so to speak. Yeah. And a lot of the skills cross up. It's obvious so many journalists end up doing this. Yeah. Um, pit, you know, researching stories, pitching stories, telling stories, and cutting your own material mercilessly. I was working with uh, my partner at the time, was a great, great friend of mine, who's still a great friend of mine from uh, NYU days. And, but he was really a director and wasn't uh, not that great a writer, but uh, you know we were having some difficulties like with our material. And when I met Cheryl, I was like, she's a journalist, she's smart, <laughs> she knows. What's the great thing about journalists? They know how the world works. So when when they come to writing stories about people, they they often just have a great immediate immediate ability to sort of jump into storytelling. And what do you think of the state of journalism today? <laughs> there's still a lot of great journalism being done, um, and there's a lot of opportunity out there. It doesn't. It's tough to make a living yeah, at it now because the, the way everything's thinned out. And yeah, then, got, there's some brilliant writers that do blogs and things. Exactly. Kind of like yeah. me and my podcast. They're doing it in their spare time while they're trying to work other jobs. So, yeah, and yeah. some of the when you think some of the cutting edge journalism is actually being done on public radio and in podcasts, like Planet Money and. Um, yeah. This American Life, which has now been around, I think, almost 30 years now, so it's not young anymore, but it changed the way journalism works. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a lot of podcasts, like Reveal, 
and criminal and life of the law and all these things that are kind of looking at the system. There's so much. I mean, podcasting is this huge area of journalism yeah. now. Mag and even like the one, a lot of the big podcasts like This American Life and Serial, are, they're based out of public radio. Exactly. Because, you know, again, they've got that. I, my biggest frustration with my alma mater, I went to school up in Washington State. Uh, which one? Uh, Pacific Lutheran University. Yeah. They had a huge public radio station that was on campus. It's one of like the top 12 in the country. And a couple months back, someone decided it would be a good idea to sell it. Uh, and as, a, as an alumni, yeah. as a communications yeah. major, as someone who did broadcasting, it infuriated me yeah. because they wanted to basically merge it with the University of Washington's uh, public radio, oh, which yeah. would give them less voices. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm so against media consolidation at this point. I'm yeah. like, there needs to be something where we're done now. Let's take five years and just yeah. focus on who's doing their own thing and develop yeah. their voices, and then see what happens. But yeah. it's it, yeah. But to have those different voices, you know, whether it's public radio yeah. or even there's still some decent talk radio that's out there. You know, oh, yeah. dials and things. I listen to a lot of British radio. British radio has always been. That's true. Where they can come up with different voices. Yeah. And they can both comedy and dramatic. Yeah, that's right. I used to listen to. I haven't listened to it for a while. I should check back into it. I don't know if the bugle is still out there. It hasn't been for a couple months oh. because you know John's John's been so busy doing and then, other things. And then Andy gets busy too. And yeah. Zaltzman gets the last busy. several bugle episodes have been what they lovingly call sub episodes. Yeah. They're his stand up where right. Saltzman does his stand up and they've been playing it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that that I wish that one. I like the Bugle more than John Oliver's HBO show. They're very honest. different. They're very, yeah. very different, different, and I understand why he yeah. would choose one over the other. But you know, career-wise, how could you not? Yeah. But, but I miss I miss the the duo. I miss the duo, and I miss yeah, the intelligence of their. Yeah. Yeah. But just the, that you, back and forth. But also, I just love Andy's in, insights into the British culture. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he still does uh, a cricket. Uh, yeah, I, sh I should I listen to that. And for a while, he did almost like a game show, a quiz show based around cricket and based around some of the stuff <laughs> that was going on that was fun. Again, I don't understand cricket. Won't even pretend to. I don't to. either. No. But I, he, I think I listened to that game show. He would have other guests, yeah. a, bit, a panel of people yep. Yep. based around cricket and current events, yeah. kind of. Yeah, I think I listened to because he's so funny. Yeah, he just he's got a he's, he's another ginger like me who has a, you know, a little. We love British comedy. That's another big inspiration point to us is British comedy. Just that. If there's a very different style to it. You know, I watched the TV show Top Gear, both the American yes. version yep. and the British version, yes. and they're very different. Oh yeah. Both good, yeah. but both very mm -hmm. different. In yeah, and, and Veep do. is very much influenced. You know, it's has a lot of Crater is, yeah, is that big British guy. He's BBC. left. Yeah. It's going without him for the first season right now. But yeah. I've heard a friend of ours is a producer on it. He says it's still going to be very good. I'm I always glad. try to get people hooked on the UK version of House of Cards, even though it's the same writer that did them both. It really There's is. There's something about that UK I should, version. Yeah. I should take a look at that. Yeah. The, oh, it's, the, it, the, yeah. I forget the name of the actor. He just passed a couple of years ago, Ian Richardson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The original uh, yeah. And Oh, it wow. Was, it was very much a, a Lady Macbeth type of situation where like, it's very different in yeah. terms of the dynamic mm -hmm. between husband and wife, where she was the one pushing him in the original series to do whatever it's, it took to was win. Was the original series from several years ago? Yeah, it was. I think we may have actually watched early that. Early 80s to we, mid 90s. I watched it. I did a couple yeah, of and it was like, yeah, murder. Yeah. And, uh, I, I watched yeah. that. I, I didn't I didn't remember that as that name, but that's exactly what it is. I remember it. Yeah, that it, is, yeah. it's darker yeah. in a weird oh, way. Yeah, very oh, yeah. much so. And, yeah. I, and you see him sort of descend into madness the way that Macbeth right. did as he goes through right. and starts to relive some of the stuff that he did and yeah. later installments but I, yeah. I don't dislike the original the new right. one the US version you know again same writer did them both uh, we listen we rewatch um yes minister and yes prime minister all mm -hmm. the time oh yeah. 
well, one of our favorite shows. Yeah, and I go through, we can talk British comedy forever, yeah. but I, you yeah. know, I go through, like Hugh Laurie, I have oh, friends who don't God. know he's from England, wow. you know, because he did such a good American accent I know. on House, that they'll but, hear him in interviews, and they'll be like, what the? Yeah. But, but then you watch Fry and Laurie, where it was just yeah. a classic show. Je Jeeves and Worcester. Jeeves and Worcester. Oh, yeah. I watch every episode of that, like, many times over. Well, once again, I thank you for taking well, thank some time. You. You're pleasure. welcome to stick around and get something to eat or whatever else, but I am going to find something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you guys both. It's time once again for our shameless pandering to hipsters and audiophiles alike. Here's Kevin with today's Vinyl Fetish. Well, there you have it. I guess it's it's fitting that on Valentine's Day, that's the day we're releasing this episode of the podcast, we have a couple who, who basically found each other through writing. And you can't get any cooler than that on a podcast centered around writing that posts on Valentine's Day. So I hope you enjoyed uh, that interview with Nicholas Falacci and Cheryl Hewton. They're a cool uh, pair of people to meet. I really, like I said, in, enjoyed their show numbers, and I look forward to that new show that they are working on. And, and hopefully we'll be able to watch it soon. Talking about his vinyl fetish today is comedian John Campanera. He was our guest last week. Uh, again, we were back at Jerry's Deli. I don't know why we keep going to different restaurants and delis and places. I guess because to me it's more interesting and it's more convenient, frankly, since uh, we do have backpack studios. We can pretty much go wherever we need to go because the studio fits in a backpack. And uh, it's just nice to be able to sit down and have somebody eat or drink and, and have a conversation. And uh, this was uh, John's vinyl fetish. We talked about what it is to be a, a comic and releasing stuff not just on vinyl, but online and, and on CD and elsewhere. So, hope you enjoy it. Here is John Capanera. Any other people's comedy albums that you sit down and listen to, or is that too I inside business you don't sit down I haven't in a while because of all the posts on YouTube. People just post guys' sure. five-minute segments. It's almost like old school to go and find an album and put it on. Because you just, you just thumb through some of this Twitter and, and Facebook and you hit the, it. It's so easy to just hit sure. it and watch. Uh, like I watched Sebastian do a five-minute piece just because people posted it, you know. And <laughs> and all these guys that used to open for me at the comedy store, I'm watching their stuff on on Facebook only because people post it. Yeah. Are you okay with people posting your stuff without your permission? Is or are you okay with them spreading spreading your name and sort of getting publicity that way? Would yeah, you prefer I'm, to control it? I'm I'm okay with it. I. I see things pop up now that I'm like, wow, I forgot I even did that. <laughs> and it's nice because I could record it, and, 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 and it's like I don't even have a copy of it. Yeah. So if I could just download it somehow and have it for my son, I'd go, at least I have it again. Somebody posted it. Like somebody posted a few episodes of The Good Life. Oh. You know, because we only did 13 right. of them. And not, some of not them. I'm going to do a DVD box set. And I only them. had like 10 of them at home, so I was missing three. Somebody posted one of the episodes I didn't have. <laughs> well, my my best album CD had to be uh, Live at Hilarities because I ended up putting 37 tracks on it. So I cover so much material. I actually could have had two CDs out of yeah. that, which I probably should have in hindsight. But it's all there in one CD, and if you want to pick that up called... Uh, a live at Hilarities, in Cleveland, Ohio. It's a great CD to have because I'd recommend your comedy coming at you CD too. That's the one I've had of yours for years. Yeah, well, comedy coming guy. at you was my very first CD, and uh, what's interesting about that CD is I shot it in '97, and I did it pretty much just to have something to sell after the show. Right. And the guy I did it with 
from St. Louis, he did it for free for me, so he could try to get it in truck stops and Best Buys and stuff like this. So we had a mutual deal. He owned it to sell it, and I owned it to try and sell it after shows. Well, he decides to sell it, my material, his ownership, to another comedy producer called Uproar Entertainment without coming to me first because it was my own stuff. So now another guy owns my material. And this was before the digital age. So right. the guy who was selling this didn't realize he just lost out on a ton of money because Sirius and XM started playing the stuff. And he sold it to this guy without even knowing that that digital era would hit. And he's lost out on a ton of money because of it. But I also lost out on the ownership rights, even though I get talent Some rights. Percentage, yeah. I don't get the ownership of my own material because this guy has it on, you know, the, the album you're talking about. Right. Comedy Coming At You. That was my first CD. But since then, I've done uh, another one called uh, Live at... Live at the Improv in Vegas, and uh, it's not a CD that's available. It's just something that I sent in to Sirius and XM, right. and they play a lot of bits off oh, it. Cool. So at least I get residuals on it. <laughs> They're keeping me alive. XM and Sirius play me a lot. But you know, if I still had the money for it, because I had, I, I picked up a car a couple years ago that had XM on it, and it was beautiful and gorgeous. And then when it ran out, I'm like. I'm just going to stick with my iPod and whatever else. Well, I'm sure but, you heard me a lot. Yeah, yeah the, on their comedy channel, you were on there a lot. A lot of the, like, the Tim Allen stand-up stuff was on there a lot. and stuff. I yeah. Like, I really like that comedy channel. The, there's two or three comedy channels, I guess. They've got well, it's one of the now, few but. things today that's keeping my name out there, you yeah. know. And when like you those. can't get on TV or whatever, uh, XM and Sirius is, is, is what's keeping me alive, you know. And that's going to do it for the podcast on this Valentine's Day, February 14th. For those of you that have, you know, spouses, significant others, or whatnot, I hope you enjoy the day. For those of you that don't, don't drink and drive. That's all I ask. And, uh, yeah, for, oh, speaking of driving, if, if you happen to be around the Inland Empire next weekend, don't expect to get out anytime soon because what they are lovingly calling Corona Mageddon, what I lovingly call trapped in the Inland Empire, uh, we got a major freeway that's going to be closed the entire weekend. So, uh, yeah, that's something we're all going to look forward to here in Southern California because, you know, it isn't like there's enough traffic. We needed to come up with an excuse to make more traffic. So, we got that to look forward to. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Happy Valentine's Day or not, you know, whatever. And until next time, get off my lawn. This has been the Get Off My Lawn podcast brought to you by Kevin's Bookmobile. Check out www.lulu.com slash marusic for a selection of books authored by your genial host. Buy a paperback, download an ebook, and help support the podcast. That's www.lulu.com slash M-A-R-O-U-S-E-K. And by our tip jar. Like what you've been hearing on the show so far? Want to hear more? Then help us out by going to getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com, clicking on the tip jar, and donating to the cause of creativity. No amount too large, no amount too small. That's getoffmylawnpod.blogspot.com. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Get Off My Lawn Pod. Check out our SoundCloud at Get Off My Lawn Podcast or subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest episodes. Questions or comments or to suggest a guest, 
Our email address is getoffmylawnpod at gmail.com. The theme was written and composed by Brian Weideman. Check out his music at www.worldbride.com. That's W-O-R-L-D-B-R-I.com. The logo was designed by Julie Contreras at Urban Bird Design. Go to urbanbirddesign.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend.